One Emotional Podcast, Conversations for Inspiration on the Go. We offer on-the-go inspiration because our whole heart is set on beauty and our best bets are set on art. Hi, Hanin. How are you? Hi, I'm doing great. I'm so, so happy to be here with you. Mm, thank you so much for joining Luan Podcast. So for people who are uh, listening to us today, I want to introduce you, Hanin Khan. She is an amazing lawyer-turned-sex coach. Hanin is on a mission to bring unashamed authenticity in the bedroom and beyond. And she's quite obsessed with connecting to the body's wisdom and believes that real intimacy happens when we risk rejection and allow ourselves to be truly seen. Wow, how important it is, right? For us to feel vulnerable enough to be open, to be seen, right? After her black sheep days in the corporate world, Hanin spent two years curating sensual theater and play parties in London, which eventually led to the birth of her signature course, The Sex Homework Society. The course breaks down the rigid performance and scripts we are trapped in and invites you to choose how you experience your sexuality with freedom. Hanin will empower you to artfully navigate your desires by learning to value the signals from your body and most importantly, not to abandon yourself. She's trained in a blend of somatic coaching, sexology, will of consent, tantra, nonviolent communication, and internal family systems therapy. And Hanin's approach is equal parts nerdy, playful, and heartfelt. Her natural superpowers include unapologetic silliness, curiosity, flirting skills, and converting people into five-minute huggers. <laughs> yeah. I love this, Hanin. This is amazing. <laughs> I love this topic. So tell us, I would like to start if you could share with us about body wisdom. What is it and how can we access that body wisdom? Where do we start? Well, powerful question to start with and probably the most passionate. Um, yes, absolutely. Like to me, the epidemic we have at the moment is that there is a, like a total disconnection from the body, right? That we treat our bodies like a bit of a brain taxi. It's just something that follows us along in our lives. And the the biggest change that I've had has been to take the signals and impulses from my body as my way of navigating life. So the first way I've done that is to understand the nervous system, right? And to understand how it's constantly picking up on keys of safety and keys of threat in our environment, including in the bedroom, including in the work context, it's happening below the surface of our awareness at all times. And then it just adapts the body's response accordingly, right? So it's what's responsible for putting us into a state of fight and flight. Because if it thinks that there's something, there's an angry person in the room or there's an incoming car, it adapts. Likewise, if it's, you know, it could put, also put you into a freeze mode or it could put you into a safe and connected mode. And so if we are, if we start to navigate the skill of just tuning into the sensations of the body right now, so even if you do that as the listener, like, how do your hands feel? How are you breathing? Like where, where do you feel most tension in the body? <sighs> Even just bringing attention to the body right now. I notice things shifting, right? There's a lot of emotions are and is energy in motion. Mm -hmm. So for me, the wisdom of the body is about tuning into those sensations, slowing down and 
by doing that, we're able to transmute, you know, sadness and grief and all of these painful emotions into joy or clarity and love. And that's where I think we do a great job as society of like constantly distracting and numbing and doing, 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 right? Being on that hamster wheel. And I teach people how to slow down, right? <laughs> Just like that's probably, I, I would scream that so many times, like slow down, slow down, slow down. It's the only way that we can take in information. The body's a lot slower than our minds. Um, and yet it has a far greater wisdom to it. So if we can see the gifts behind what it's telling us, you know, only like people who suffer from chronic fatigue and chronic backache, all of these psychosomatic symptoms can tell us that something is being suppressed in the body. Emotions have a, you know, just in the way you're breathing or it has a, you can tell someone's angry by perhaps some like a strained muscle in the forehead, for example. So we can, we can really pick up on exactly how someone is feeling based on their body language. Of course. And I think that you mentioned something interesting. So kind of like the first step is to stop, to slow down so we can feel better, kind of like get better at feeling, not only kind of like leading as a moving everybody to feel more positive, but just getting better at feeling what's inside you. And then once you feel your feelings, right, then you can use them as your compass to navigate through your body, right? Yes. Oh, hundred percent. I still say emotions are like tunnels, not caves. Mm. Like eventually you get through to the other side and people think they're like caves and that they're, they're, they'll be swallowed and encompassed by the sadness or the anger, mm. but actually like on the other side is, is joy and creativity. So. Of course. And for example, once that people have already felt that emotions, right, have been connected or mindful or are aware of their emotions, how can they access that wisdom inside their body? Do you think your, our body is talking to us constantly? Oh, 100%. Yes, I love to see it and to talk about it in those frames. It is having a conversation with you. And the problem is that we're not fluent in speaking body, right? Like we don't understand, oh, I have tension in, I don't know, my stomach. And we just think, we dismiss it. We don't really know how to translate it into something. And it's not always very clear. It doesn't speak verbally. So I think to me, this is a practice of firstly, just like being aware of the sensation, you know, we don't have a habit of doing that. So if we can build that practice, eventually we'll start to associate certain impulses and sensations with a certain emotion, mm -hmm. right? Like, I've now really, I've gone through a lot of grief recently from a breakup. Um, and so I know exactly how grief feels in the body. It's like this, it's like a compression in my chest and like a shortness of breath. And like, I, I feel a lot of energy behind my eyes, um, like almost stinging of tears. And I think just noticing that helps me to just be with it because often all emotions want are to be felt they just want to be seen they want to be heard and I think that's really how we translate and tap into the body's wisdom it's not like okay let's fix it let's like go and do xyz it's just that's it I just want to be listened to 100 there's this uh oneness institute i don't know if you heard about it in india and their posture or, or what they say or what they teach is that the emotion our emotional body has the ability to heal itself so if we are for example we have emotions that feel good to our internal body and we have emotions that feel bad right mm. And then the good emotions, we want to retain them. We want to retain that feeling of bliss or that feeling of joy or that feeling of, ca of happiness. And we're creating tension by trying to retain it, right? And then the, the 
bad emotions, if you want to label it like that, the uncomfortable emotions, that would be a better name. Um, we want to reject them, right? We're feeling grief or we're feeling pain or we're feeling guilt or we're feeling, you know, anything else. And we're constantly trying to reject those feelings and we're constantly creating tension, either retaining or rejecting. But if you just sit down and let the emotion go in, you would feel the uncomfortable emotion and honestly, it doesn't last more than a minute. It's there. If you feel it, you integrate it once you feel it and put your attention into it. Yes. I also want to just caveat that because I think it can be the minute is yes, it can. If you're very adept at staying with the feelings, but the we've had a lifetime of conditioning of not listening to our feelings and our desires and our boundaries. So this isn't, this is going to be a practice of like you will not realize the invisible forces of resistance that come up when you try and stay with the feelings you think you're staying with the feelings and actually all this other stuff might come up and interfere and so it might take that half an hour maybe it takes a few days but eventually you will get to a place where it can trans transmute itself within as you say within a minute um i was listening to a podcast the other day and this guy i forget his name now but he was just saying if you literally just lay on the floor and just allowed the emotions to move within you eventually the body's just going to know what to do. It's just, it wants to get to a place of homeostasis so badly. It's almost like asking like, how do I drop a boiling hot frying pan? Like you just do it. Your body just knows how to do it. So it just takes that little bit of time. And maybe it's, maybe it's a bit forced at the beginning. If you've never been in touch with sadness, what would it be like to try to pretend to cry or to like, like, yeah, act it for a little bit and then see if that, if the body takes over or shake, or move the body, or have an embodied practice of some form like yoga or dancing to help, yeah, move that energy inside you. A hundred percent. I remember this um, author called Jody Spencer. I don't know if you know him, but he talks a lot about how your body has the ability to, to, to heal itself and to reach homeostasis. The only thing that you need to do is move out of the way. Yes, <laughs> you know? that's such a good way of saying it. Don't complicate your health. Don't complicate your life. Just move yourself out of the way. Yes. <laughs> your body knows what to do. <laughs> Easier said than done, but yes, I totally agree with you. Like, yeah, the mind just gets in the way. Definitely does. But I don't think the mind is the problem. I'll just say this. Like, sometimes we're so obsessed, especially in sex. It's like, how do I stop thinking? How do I like get out of my head? And I often say to people, it's like not about getting rid of the mind chatter. We will always be thinking. We can't, we can't stop thinking. It's just about switching the body on. It's not about turning the mind off. It's about switching the body on. Of course, of course. And something that I love about relationships and I love your background as a sex coach is intimacy. Most of the time people, I think, um, talk more about, you know, sexuality and, you know, specific things in the bedroom. But I think that, you know, a good relationship or the foundation of a, of a good relationship starts with intimacy, right? And for you, what is intimacy and why is it important and why is it very challenging for many people? Mm, I absolutely love this question. I love the word intimacy and I have so many different definitions and so my whole face is lighting up right now. Um, I want to start by actually just reading a quote because it's like one of my favorite intimacy quotes. Um, People think intimacy is about sex, but intimacy is about truth. Mm. When you realize that you can tell someone your truth, when you can show yourself to him or her who you really are, and the response is, you are safe with me, that is intimacy. Wow. And I love that. Wow. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> it's vulnerability. It's, 
yeah your thoughts i have a few more things to share on that but curious. and i remember talking about that quote this author called michael michael brown from the presence process he talks about intimacy as into me see mm. like you see inside of me into me see right so it's kind of like a way of letting yourself be seen completely as you are no masks no anything as you are with your flaws and your amazing things and your fires and everything who you are i love that you said that and i feel like the best way to do that is to first see yourself like i feel often this what this happens in connection in a relationship with someone is like you're like so encompassed by this person your attention is totally on them and you're really seeing them but you're not actually seeing yourself so for me intimacy is about presence and connection with self whilst in presence and connection with another person right like let's not abandon ourselves like right now i can still i'm still like in connection with some of my desires some of my tensions and it means i can bring authenticity to this connection that is real intimacy like if i feel sudden irritation and i bring that into this connection or um if i feel yeah, I think it's it's really that, isn't it? It's like bringing your fullness, but we can't do that unless we see ourselves and we have some of that attention on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, that that's a skill. It's a train. I have to train people to do that, right? <laughs> to notice themselves. It really relates to our previous conversation on being with your body sensations, right? Because people yeah. don't even know what does it mean to have attention on ourselves. Um, and it's just that. It's like, what are your desires, your feelings, your thoughts in this moment? Um, that's how I would describe it. And intimacy, I think the thing that gets away, gets in blocks intimacy is probably shame, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think shame is like a feeling of, it's like what blocks disconnection. It's like, I am not worthy of love. And so there's a part of you that just doesn't want to see your true self, that doesn't think you're worthy of belonging. And so all these protection, you know, barriers come up in the way of, of intimacy, intimacy with ourselves and others. And literally the antidote to that is vulnerability. It's allowing ourselves to be seen the courage of like, hey, this is, these are all the parts of me that I feel that feel ugly and that don't feel lovable. And yeah, that to me is the truest measure of courage is vulnerability. Um, and that's the antidote to shame. I'm preaching Brené Brown here, so this is definitely not my own like thinking and work. <laughs> so I agree with you. I think it requires a lot of courage for us to feel vo- vulnerable. And vulnerability is really strong, I think, for human beings because we arrive to this world of being completely vulnerable, right? So we are a species that the first three years of our lives if somebody is not taking care of us, we will never survive. Even nowadays, is that how old? Maybe a 12 year old, would you leave him, leave him or her in the forest? Do you think he will survive? You know what I mean? So we are a very vulnerable species that we need community and we take kind of like, you know, that village, you know, to help us be raised. And we are born feeling completely vulnerable, right? We depend on our mother's love and we depend on the, on the, on the caretakers that are around us for us to thrive and to be fed and to survive. So we touch with really primal emotions. Nowadays, when we are grown-ups, right, and we feel vulnerable, that vulnerability in our emotional body has made an imprint when we were born in our first, you know, newborn year, months or years, right? And I think, for example, sometimes that's why 
rejection can feel so intense because nowadays if somebody rejects you honestly 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 it's not the end of the world that nothing is going to happen to you you will find another person uh, you know so eventually you will be okay you know it's, you're not gonna die from that but rejection i think it feels so strong because if you are rejected in the first months of your life it means the end of your survival so it's kind of like a matter of life or death And that's why I think it feels so primitive I mean, it feels so intense inside. You put that so beautifully. And I don't know if you've like read Gabor Mate's work, but you've literally just like lifted out his wisdom. <laughs> and that's what he talks about, right? So <laughs> connection is a matter of life and death as a, as a child. And so, yes. of course, when he, but he could, I'll add, I'll add a bit of sugar on top of what you're saying. So yes. not only do we need Do not only does connection and rejection is almost the opposite of connection feel like life and death it comes at the tension or polarizes the need for authenticity mm. right and authenticity is like being true to our desires being true to our boundaries being who like what we want in the world and often we sacrifice that to stay in connection with the other because we we still carry that feeling of life and death into adulthood mm -hmm. and as you say i think there's something here about the journey into adulthood is about reclaiming our authenticity to know that we're safe to be authentic in connection mm -hmm. right like mm -hmm. and then how can we like help soften the blow of rejection a little bit more and i i now like love it like i feel most safe when i get a no because then i can trust someone's yes i'm like okay, this person's like, is taking care of themselves, which means I don't have to caretake them. Or like, to me, if I can hear no's more softly, then I will hear yes more often. You know, if I constantly reject someone's rejection, so if I act with anger towards somebody's no, or if I act with defensiveness, then that person is going to, they're, they're not going to feel safe to build a relationship with me. Like mm -hmm. conflict is the gateway to intimacy. It's where we find out, it's like where we shape and mold our connection with each other and how we feel safe to be authentic. And so the, the most loving thing we can do is accept, accept somebody's rejection or their boundaries and to remove the stories that we have about it. Mm. Like, oh, this is about me. They must not like me. I'm the bad person. And it's like, actually, no, this isn't this is really, it's really like, it's not about you. Yeah, it's not about you. It's about them. No. Right. But we tend to take it personally right yes. and how can we reach deeper levels levels of authenticity because we are born or we're raised in a culture that constantly is telling you to fit in to do something different to dress in a certain way to look in a certain way right so how can we access the true essence and the true authenticity of who we are of the oh. of the i am You're literally knocking on my door of like work that I do. I just love it. It's like, how do I reclaim my full self? As you say, when we've had all this conditioning, it's like, you know, even as a kid, you're told like, you have to eat your vegetables. You have to go to bed. You have to get your homework in time. You can't talk to Sarah during class. It's like constant, like, I don't care what you want. These are the rules, right? And so now it's like, okay, wait, what, what do I want? Like when I ask people about what they want, there's like a low grade panic that like descends yes. in the room. It's like, I don't know. What do I I've do? never asked that question before. <laughs> <laughs> Am I allowed to ask that question? <laughs> yeah, yes, of 
getting like, the permission. Oh, it's so beautiful. I'm so glad you said that. Like, I think firstly it is, it's like, is there legit, can I bring legitimacy to my desires? And the first thing I would say to that is like, you have no say in what you want. You don't, we can't want to want something. The desire just lives within us. It's in our bodies. And it's just about whether we choose to pay attention to it and what we do with it. So I think the first thing to reclaiming authenticity is to reclaim our desires, mm. which are hidden under layers of shame and guilt because we were told that you're not allowed to be dissatisfied. You're not allowed to be hungry or horny or mad, right? Mm. So can we allow ourselves to be all of those things? And that helps us to be in touch with our truest desires. Mm. And then I would say it's the skills. Once you're aware, then it's the skills of like stepping into like asking for what you want. And that's where all the communication skills come in here. It's like, okay, actually, I would love to yeah, kiss you right now. I would love to, I don't know, like hop on a flight to go X, Y, Z to go and see you. I mean, these are very like low grade examples, but I often give people the, this, or they call it like the bad girl protocol, or it could be the, the bad guy protocol, but it's like, <laughs> could you write, if you had all the permission in the world and you could break every rule and it, you would never be seen as like reckless or greedy or slutty or whatever, like what would be all the things that you would do in this world? And that kind of helps you remove that, the layers of, conditioning right mm -hmm. to help us access those hidden desires um and then i would say yeah going to like workshops in the wheel of consent has helped me tremendously like that that framework is really about being so much clearer in my agreements and interactions with people right mm -hmm. like taking ownership of like this is what i want this is for me uh, or if someone asks me something, it's like, no, this is not what I want. Mm. So it's the desires and boundaries are like twins for me, asking for what you want and saying no. Mm. That's those two skill sets to me, I call them self-consent or this mm. like like authenticity. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense. I times that, yeah. No, yes, it does make sense. I actually remember in Burning Man, you know, um, in different workshops, they talk about enthusiastic consent. You know, and you need to kind of like present yourself as or like communicate with enthusiasm about your consent. And that could be either a yes or a no, but you need to communicate it correctly. It's not it's not okay kind of like a, if someone asks you like, do I want to kiss you or any examples that, or, or I want to grab a flight and go see you as an example that you just said, you cannot say like, oh, well, maybe, you know, no, it's like, yes, I would love to, or with all the love that I have for you, I don't think that's the best idea. So I would prefer for you not to do it, you know? And you can reject with, with love and you can reject with compassion, as we mentioned in the in the in the beginning of this of this podcast. But you need to communicate that enthusiastically, that consent. Mm. So well put. So well put. Like we can our responsibility is to communicate it compassionately, but not to take responsibility for the other person's mm -hmm. reaction. And that is, I find that really hard, like navigating um like my desires and how do I because I want that person to be happy I want them to also not be affected but I think the reality is like we are going to be impacted by virtue of being human we're going to impact other people mm. and you know people will be upset and angry or whatever it is and so yeah to me I think yeah learning to communicate like th I think these are the three the, the three skill sets one is noticing noticing what you want what the desire is that arises within you a lot of people don't even do that because they've learned mm -hmm. to override it and numb it is there mm -hmm. 
<laughs> then it's valuing that information. Is this information like, is it trivial? Is it not sexy enough? Is it, you know, just like this, is it legitimate? Will it be okay? Will it be approved? Am I worthy of it? You know, that's also its own thing. And then it's like, okay, now you communicate it. If you feel like you've noticed it and you valued it, can you communicate it? Um, and I think we often blame like, oh, we haven't communicated it, but it's probably because we're stuck on the other two levels before that. Of course. And when you communicate and you have, you need to have the courage to communicate it and the assertiveness for people to understand exactly what you're saying, because sometimes people communicate or you can communicate something and people understand something different, different, right? And he's like, no, I meant this or I meant that. So how can we reach intimacy with assertive communication? Hmm. Oh, this is a big one. How to reach intimacy with assertive communication. So I think the first thing is to be aware of like the dance or patterns that you engage in, right? When you have, uh, let's, let's, let's take the example of couples because that's often where this happens, right? You get into a lot of arguments and the communication gets bickery. You start criticizing them. You start, there's inflamed arguments. And really this is not about the dishes, but it's about something underneath that. So like, where do you go to when like rather like there's a difference i think there's something here about empowered communication like being aware of your true needs underneath right rather than dancing around the issue with anger or defensiveness or whatever that is and so the first key for me and this ties back to the body it's like notice if that you are inflamed or dysregulated or angry or like any of those things because if you're coming from that place your faculties for problem solving, for communicating, for being creative have just gone offline. Mm. So like if you're communicating with your partner and arguing about the stuff, no, like time out. <laughs> and that's okay. Like, hey, let's take a let's take a 20 minute break and like decompress mm -hmm. and then come back. And it's really important that you let your partner know, like, mm -hmm. hey, give them a timeline to come back to. And maybe you want to extend it for longer. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Then I feel like the part that's changed for me to build intimacy has been coming from a place of like I and vulnerability. Like instead of saying you aren't doing this, you, 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 it's like, I feel, I feel scared. I feel scared. I'm going to lose my connection with you. I feel insecure or I feel jealous or I, yeah, the, I think when you come at it from vulnerability, it, it's so unlikely that your partner is going to like get defensive about that. <laughs> like yeah. it endears you to the connection. They want to hear you. And I think, I think that is important and the role of empathy is really important. So like often we end up in a fight about who is right and con conflict's not about correction, like who's right, who's wrong. It's about, it's about connection, not correction. It's about connection. <laughs> so <laughs> You know, it's just, it's, yeah, it's not a, it's not a competition. It's like, hi, like, oh, I see, this is how you feel. And I, I can, I can see why you feel that way. I can understand. You don't have to agree with it, but if you can just like share, you know, this person's point of view, it helps them to lean in. Of course. Of course. I remember I went to this, um, Buddhist Buddhist meditation retreat and, um, and they told, they taught us like this 
exercise for conflict resolution that I thought was really important. So the first step that they said was about watering the plants. Okay. So instead of like arriving directly to the problem or to the point, and then, you know, people can react you know, feeling threatened, right? Over here was about starting saying something amazing about that person. For example, like, Hanin, I love the way you talk. I love also, like everything that you know about sexuality, about body works. You do things amazing. You talk amazingly well. You have a way of expressing, you know, like generally talk, you know, real stuff and that you acknowledge and that you love and that you like or that you admire of the other person. Step two is to tell the person, how that action, not the person, how that action made you feel, which is different. It's really different. Like, Hanin, you heard me instead of, you know, Hanin, uh, the, the comment that you said hurt, I, I felt hurt instead of like, kind of like putting yourself in guilt. It's like, I felt hurt by this comment or I felt, you know, uh, not worthy by this action, or I felt, you know, not enough by this. So by communicating how you feel, it kind of like lowers the threatening level that the other person might feel. Right. Mm. And then the third step is obviously kind of like the resolution of what, you know, both could implement, you know, to prevent that from happening again. But I found that approach completely different because some of the times, you know, people say like, oh, you're so, um, I don't know, narcissist or you're like really selfish. And they kind of like, you know, put names on the other person, attacking the other person for something that you felt. And it's kind of like, it was the action that made you feel like that. It's not the person that actually made you feel like that it was the action. And that kind of like takes out the responsibility, you know, of, of, um, of a conflict, but I think it's way more productive for conflict resolution than maybe other approaches. Totally. Oh, I just love everything you said. Highly endorsed all of it. <laughs> like, yeah. and I also got like slightly triggered when you said like, oh, you're selfish, you're narcissistic. I definitely heard, heard that so many times from my parents. That's a particularly like, and, and I was, I, I remember reading somewhere that self, when someone calls you selfish, like it's them saying that they're just annoyed because they can't control you. That's really, it's used as a way to like make something like, bad that they're doing something that can't. Yeah, it's like, I want you to be doing something that I want. Right. And because I see you're free and you're doing what you want, then you're, you are like, you are selfish. And they put with the you, they put all the guilt. And it's like, maybe for them, it's like, Hanin, you're making me feel not worthy because you're not spending time with me. Hanin, you're making me feel that, um, I don't know, I'm afraid of, you know, dying alone, you know, mm. and that's more productive because you understand better the other person and you approach that situation with way more compassion than if that person would be attacking you. Absolutely. Oh, I love that. It makes me think about like, yeah, the ways in which I've like, I was going to say something about my childhood here. There was like, mm. oh, I've lost the thread. I've lost the thread, Marion. Okay, we'll move past it. But yeah, it was a good one. And she'll come to me, I know it will. <laughs> come to you, come to you. Yes, 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 yes. And something that I would like to dive a little bit deeper, it's this emotion that you mentioned at the beginning called shame. Mm. I think it's, it feels terrible, right? You felt it, I felt it, no? And it feels ah, so uncomfortable, right? So I would like to ask you if you know about the origins and where it affects the most and how can we overcome it? Mm, great. Yes. Oh, wow. 
And I want to start by saying for those people who don't necessarily grasp the concept of shame, sometimes an easier word to use can be criticize. This criticism of self, it's not quite the same thing, but if it helps people to understand um, the origins of shame. So gosh, this could be, it could be gen- like, you know, generational, it could be carried through um, from previous lines, but also I think shame starts the, the, honestly, the difference between someone who feels shame and someone who doesn't feel shame is whether someone believes that they're worthy of love and belonging. Mm. That's all it is. Like if you believe you're worthy of love and belonging, like shame cannot like, yeah, take hold of you. Mm-hmm. And it's, it can be, I think to me, there's nothing wrong with feeling shame per se. It's like the, it, I always think about the meta meta emotions. So yeah. when you're having an emotion, what do you feel about having the emotion? Mm-hmm. So often I can feel shameful for feeling shame. Mm-hmm. And if I can recognize that I'm doing that and stay with the part of like, it's always coming back to childhood and this wounded inner part of Henine that didn't feel good enough when she was younger for whatever reason. If you think about all the ways and the conditions in which you were told like, you are only worthy if you get all A stars at school and you're only good enough. And therefore you then get the high overachievers, for example, or maybe you've had a bad example in your, you know, your sex life and you've been told that you're not beautiful enough. And for whatever reason, you start to feel shame around your body. Yeah. And to me, the, one of the best ways, like shame loves secrecy. Mm. So the more we're able to talk about our sources of shame, if we don't even necessarily need to understand it but if we feel this like contraction or tension or like hiding it has that feeling of like it's very protective mm. and that's why in my in my workshops my courses I want it to be a community container I want people to be able to share like all the parts of themselves that have felt unlovable because then once you share it and you're like oh wow people still love me like I'm still yeah <laughs> I'm here and people are connecting with me then it doesn't feel as scary and it doesn't feel as big as you thought it would be, right? It's just kind of like, there, I said it. And then other people s- says them, as like their, their own. And it's like, ah, you know, we're all human. We're connecting with that. But it's, you mentioned something really interesting that I would like to pinpoint. Is that shame is always connecting or that, you know, that, that worthiness always has to do with something kind of like external about you. It doesn't have to do with your essence. It doesn't have to do with who, with who you are. It's connected to, oh, okay, Yosa, if you don't do this, you will not get love. If you do, don't do this, then you do not belong in the family or in the, this female lineage, right? Or if you, you're not tall enough or you don't have big breasts or you don't have X, Y, and Z, whatever happens with your body, then you are not worthy of love. And it's outside of you, something physical, or it's something that has to do with certain um, goal, but it's not your essence. It's not who you are. So how could people access that belonging and that worthiness inside of themselves? It's really well put. Firstly, I want to agree with you, like shame loves conditions. Mm -hmm. It loves to put like the, if I did this, I would be in that Yes, exactly. It's kind of like the, it's like for shame, like the importance is to reach to the end goal, but shame, the whole process, shame doesn't care about. And the whole process, most, most of the time, shame is really present. 
you know, it's like, okay, if you don't get there, then you're not worthy of love. And it's, you know, kind of like, you know, bugging you constantly, just focusing on the goal. Yeah, just I felt that in my heart as you said that, because I know I I'm going to give a personal example because I feel I used to feel a huge amount of shame and to some degree I do around like using my sexuality as a not as a weapon, but as a way to like bridge connection. I only thought I was worthy of being loved for my fun, playful, like sexual side of Hanim. You know, mm-hmm. that was that was that was what people want. They don't want the like the emotional, sensitive Hanin, I'm not worthy of a long-term relationship was a belief that I had. And, oh, soul-destroying. Like, it's so interesting because shame also loves to, like, repeat the same patterns, right? It will, like, I'll keep almost reaffirming this belief to myself. It becomes a very entrenched story. So I kept, like, finding relationships where people were emotionally unavailable Mm -hmm. and repeating those patterns. And so I think to break that cycle of worthiness, Firstly, it becomes with awareness, like, oh, here's the pattern. Okay, that's interesting. As with everything, so everything starts with awareness equals choice, I always say. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, the biggest shift was when I told someone I really was starting to form a very dear bond to, like, that I felt scared, that I, I felt like my heart was exposed and I didn't feel worthy of love. And that was the beginning of this really profound healing journey for me. Um, Because when he said to me that he loved me back and like, I was like, wow, this is like, what? (laughs) What's going on here? Um, That was, that's beautiful. I think there's this, there was courage in me sharing that. And I think, I think I'm going to be repeating myself here, but I think it's, it's probably vulnerability. It's the sharing of the parts of you that feel like they can't be seen. Mm -hmm. Sharing what do you think your conditions are? For being worthy in this world and that that starts to unlock and unravel kinds of things and shame and healing from shame is shame is not a linear journey as well like it has a very intelligent way of continuing to like take hold of you and of i think yeah so the whole healing process it's kind of like an onion right you're kind of like taking some layers off but you know you're still kind of like healing and approaching that healing journey through different angles it's not kind of like you do a workshop or you do, I don't know, some medicinal plants or you do, you know, of course it, it helps to take, you know, the first layer off, but then you have the next one and then the next one. And you need to continue your life, you know, being aware of that healing process because you need, you know, for, you need to be exposed to different triggers that are going to help you arrive to that healing journey. And I feel that, you know, those emotions, as we mentioned at the beginning, are a compass, kind of like a compass telling you where you need to heal. And if we're not aware of our emotions, we're not aware of the compass. So then sometimes we don't know how to navigate our internal, you know, our emotional bodies. Yes. I want to make a point on that just to refine that because yes, our bodies and our emotions are a compass, but there's almost, there's a difference. I've realized this like that between instinct and wisdom right? And trauma responses. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we might have a disproportionate reaction to something and have a lot of fear around something. And then we're like, see, like I should listen to that. Like this, this connection isn't safe, but actually it's coming from something from childhood or from, you know, like, oh, it's not safe to be around someone who, for me, it's like, if someone has anger, for example, like I had a very volatile mother. So to me, it's like, I will withdraw and I'll have this 
I would think it's instinct, but actually it's a traumatic response. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's too much for this podcast to go into how do you tell the difference, but there is a difference. Like yeah. you start to understand what the difference between intuition and trauma responses are mm-hmm. that help you to say what's wisdom and what's like a fear response. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Quite interesting. I like that. And I want to kind of like raise the heat of the, com- over the like the sexy heat of the conversation for a bit. And I would like to dig a little bit deeper on what are the benefits of connecting with our sensuality, right? Now that we've explored all of different emotions that could block our sexuality and sensuality, right? What are, once we already navigated those emotions and, you know, done our healing process, what are the benefits of connecting with that sensuality? Why is it important? So two things here. I want to define sensuality. Mm-hmm. I think sensuality is really about being connected to the five senses. Mm. It's about being able to fully see, feel, touch, smell. That's all it is. This isn't just in case because there's a difference between sensuality and sexuality here. Mm. And you were saying before that once we've done all the healing work, then how do we connect to our sensuality? And I I would challenge that and say, I think we should be engaging in sensuality as part of the healing journey mm-hmm. i think there's a that to me is a part of that reclamation of our eroticism our aliveness our desire reigniting our desires again um and it's part of we were talking about the body right before and how we can get into a fight and flight response and freeze and, and stress especially in our in our age right of like doing 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 so reconnecting to sensuality for me is a way of like rooting and grounding and connecting to the body it's like remembering slowing down and mindful eating it's like taking the time to enjoy the sunshine on my face or to appreciate how green the trees are or like just listening to the whirring sounds of the kettle or like just yeah slowing down that's all it is it doesn't have to be anything sexy and I think connecting to our sensuality is a way of regulating the nervous system as well. There's so many benefits. Like, yeah. I'm trying to think if there's anything reconnecting to sensuality. Is the to me, it's like orgasmic living. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Orgasmic living and with everything, not, not only with sex, but with, you know, falling in love with life and everything that it brings, right? Orgasmic living of, of feeling um the most intense emotions and euphoria and joy just because we're alive absolutely yes and i don't think we get there unless we have unless we're willing for our hearts to be broken and to feel sadness like our capacity for love and enjoyment of life is proportionate to our capacity for sadness and heartache and grief so yeah just sharing that it's not always going to be like unicorns and races all the time of course and it's funny um to see kind of like different approaches of religions kind of like at some point um didn't actually support it that we could say that (laughs) didn't actually kind of like it was more you know in some religions about offering this the suffering right and it was more about sacrifice And it was more about many things that we can see that, you know, sensuality and sexuality, obviously it was created, you know, it was banned for in, in, in religions for, I think, different reasons, no, but 
sometimes there is a connection with your higher self or with God or with the creative energy or however we want to name that. But there's a connection with that energy when we're feeling sensual, right? And there has been like many spiritual or religious groups that have used, you know, sexuality and sensuality for, you know, for, for, for different reasons and for different, you know, um, experiences and others, religions and spiritual organizations that have banned them completely. Mm. Why do you feel that religions and spirituality have like such a dual point of view? It's kind of like black and white on these topics that are so human. Mm. We all have. Wow. <laughs> so. wow. Big question. I also love it because I haven't specifically asked myself this question before so everything I'm going to say here is going to be a little bit unbaked um yeah I wonder if this is related to like I I wonder if because so for me like tantra for example is a great example of a spiritual belief that embodies or takes like the force of pleasure and puts it into our life force and the eroticism and creativity. That's what it's about. It's not really about sex. It's about using pleasure to live like, yeah, to live our life. And I know that there are other religions. I think that to me, there's a lot of shame and kind of repression and control that can be built into some of these religions, which like, I, yeah, I guess sexuality is in those instances, I wonder if it's a form of control. That's that's my that's my gut instinct. Maybe that's controversial to say. Um, I think it is, and sometimes it could be money oriented. For example, I think for some priests, for example, the reason of you know celibate, no, or like like you know the reason that it's not allowed for them to have sex. I think it was something that had to do with the with the inheritance of the church. Because if all the priests were having 10 kids, then who is going to maintain them, right? Who is, who is going to support them economically? So, true. so I think it was kind of like a form of control to keep kind of like the, the, the economic power centered on like, you know, the Pope, for example, no, instead of like all the earnings that the church had, then eventually having to, you know, support, you know, the education and everything of the siblings of the, of the kids of that priest. Yeah, that's a really good point. It makes me think if you apply this then to sexuality, if everyone was free, loving, sexual, sensual, we were all like able to embody loads of pleasure. I feel like we wouldn't be as controllable. This is a bit of a political statement, but then I don't think we would be as like of a consumerist society, this constant, like <laughs> I need to always like do more, achieve more, have more. I think if we just like stepped fully into our sexuality, I think the world would be so much better for it. And, and, but, but then I think there would be other things that would suffer. Like, yeah, the <laughs> yes. consumerism and capitalism probably. <laughs> Yeah, it's an interesting rabbit hole. I've not fully yes, and they're like spiritual groups that have used sexuality to kind of like uh, to reach meditative states or euphoria states, right? To use something so so human, so you know, um, something that's with us, you know, constantly to use that to kind of like use them as a gateway 
to experience kind of like a nirvana. I don't know if you, I remember uh, my husband and I, we took a course of, uh, of the Tao. And, um, and in the Tao, it was kind of like, you know, all the time, it was kind of like reaching this spiritual place and how as a couple, right, you can, you can reach that. And it was obviously through breathing and through, you know, different exercises, but it's interesting, you know, how there are different, um, let's say, you know, movements or ideologies that actually, you know, praise sexuality for something, you know, that should be normalized and should be, you know, opened and spoken about and not used as something taboo, mm. right? We're all, we're all born that way. Yes. <laughs> it's like so natural, like our existence has to do with that. <laughs> so it should be like the, like the, you know, easiest thing to talk about if that's the way that we arrive to this, to this earth, to this yeah. planet. It's so interesting as well, because I do think that it also used to be very separate. Like we used to think marriage and procreation was you know that was that was what it was about sex wasn't about pleasure and love and the vitality it was just more of an economic enterprise i guess just to like continue generations and all of that stuff and i think now that relationships and marriage is intertwined with love and pleasure and happiness it has become a lot more complicated and yeah that shift that paradigm shift is yeah, it's just interesting, I find. Yeah. Very interesting. And I think there's still a lot to explore. For example, I don't know if you heard about Miss Yaya and the erotic blueprint. Oh, of course. Yes, 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 yes. So there's kind of like, you know, I think we're starting to, you know, dig deeper and like, you know, see different speakers such as Miss Yaya or Esther Perel or other women around, you know, or men like David Data and others, you know, that, that start, you know, talking about this, um, these topics with a lot of research. And for example, in the work of David Data of, you know, combine sexuality with something spiritual and combining sexuality with, with, with doing good, you know, so of not hurting people, just kind of like experiencing the full potential that we have as human beings. Mm, love that. I'm curious that, yeah, how do you, like, I'm, if we were to compare like our previous selves when we were not as embraceive of sexuality, perhaps, and now you and I clearly have this more progressive view towards it. What do you think, what do you feel has been the biggest shift for you? Like, you know, in terms of your navigation of the world, your perception of the world, your like, yeah, just as a real life example. I think for me, it has been to, it has been liberating and I think completely free to have this new mindset about sexuality, that it's something more human and more natural than something that I was raised with. I was raised in an all girls Catholic school, which everything that had to do with sexuality was like completely banned, right? Completely banned. So there was no sexual education. And it was everything about, you know, if it was a sin, if it was dirty, if it wasn't allowed, if it wasn't, um, you know, it was like, okay, is that who is actually, you know, getting hurt? Is it me, you know, and kind of like questioning it. Fortunately, in my, in my upbringing, I had a Buddhist father. So that also helped me a lot to kind of like, you know, think broader 
and I have a Jewish grandmother. So also that also helped, you know, to think about different points of view, different ideologies, different religions. So, and I love books. I love books. I could dwell on books constantly and, you know, and research a lot about that. And I read, for example, the work of Helen Fisher. I don't know if you know her, but she's the one that created the uh, match.com algorithm. And he, she created um, four different um, kind of like characteristics or, you know, four different personalities for relationships. And for example, there's also another book that I read a lot uh, called Sex at Dawn that explores the biological background of humans and actually debates a lot if we are monogamous or polygamous, mm. which I find interesting. It's kind of like curiosity driving me to, you know, to read and to get to know. And I, and I think it's way more liberating if we open the conversation and we're allowed to talk about sexuality and sensuality and erotism in a more human way, right? And be able to open the conversation and put, you know, important ethical values to that. For example, you know, treating the other person with respect, um, for example, you know, acknowledging and seeing the other person, um, you know, not being a traitor, not lying, you know, like many other things that I would add, you know, to the conversation that I think that are way more hurtful than actually enjoying your sexuality as I was raised to think, right? That that was like a sin and that was like dirty and that was like terrible to, um, to, to engage in, right? And the more that I grew up and I, you know, can open my mind and dig into these topics, I think the more liberating and the more sense that it makes to me. Mm. And I think it's important to open the conversation because how many relationships end because of a sexuality problem, right? Too many. And we don't think we, it's to do with sexuality, but yeah, go yeah. on. And, and there could be, you know, amazing connection in other things. It could be an intellectual connection. It could be, you know, uh, family, kids. It could be like many other things that bring that couple together. But people are afraid to talk about that. And that's why I think, and that's why when you gave that workshop, I was like, no, no, I need to, you know, bring her to the podcast and we need to open this conversation because it's something really human. Mm. So, so well put. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> like, I think there's something here about, Firstly, like how we do sex is how we do life. Mm. So like everything that I have, yes. all the work that I have done in my sexual, like pushing the boundaries of discomfort, exploring my shame, understanding my stories. Um, what do I actually want? All of that has been a mirror to the rest of my life and how I navigate my work relationships, my finances, my, where I live. And in parallel to that, it's really got me asking some of those deeper questions of what do I, what are the paradigms that I'm like unconsciously existing in, right? Like you have the relationship escalator that like tells you that relationships look like this. You meet a person, you move in with them, you get married, you have kids or like, you know, there's also a sex escalator as well. Like it looks like kissing, you know, foreplay, penis and vagina orgasm, you know, all these things. It, these are very, these are scripts. Mm. The scripts. So when I'm exploring my sexuality, which to me is a place of self-expression and creativity, and I'm reclaiming myself in all of that, it's also enabling me to ask in the bigger picture, what do what scripts do I want to deconstruct and how do I want my relationships to look like? Why do I have a romantic partner? What does that fulfill for me? Why mm. what is friendship to me? How would I like what are my needs around that? Rather than fitting in the boxes that society have told mm. us that 
this is what relationships are this is a successful relationship etc etc of course and sometimes society tells you that it's kind of like completely linear no as you mentioned Mm -hmm. and in reality it's kind of like a jungle gym no kind of like you grab the stairs you go up you go into you know a plant you go one way up down you know it's like kind of like you arrive to those things almost almost like in a different pathway, right? Like for example, each relationship that maybe you've had, maybe you didn't follow exactly the linear line. Yeah. It's different because you were experimenting different things. It was at different times in your life. You met maybe that person in a trip. You met, you know, maybe your ex-boyfriend at school. I don't know. Right. And the beginning of relationships, I think it has to do more with connection and authenticity mm. and how we see each other than you know other things that we put around culturally for example there's this author that i love her name is susana balan and she talks about this legitimizing mirada that's in spanish but like this legitimizing view and how a person that you're dating or or that you're with is seeing you and that gives you that legitimizing look of like i see you and I see you're amazing and I see that you're worthy and I see that you're beautiful and I think that you're sexy and and I love how you express yourself and I love who you are and that look completely changes part of your part of your perception even though obviously it's more important how you look how you look inside yourself right but when you have that legitimizing look from the outside that's you know that's legitimizing you in your intimacy and I think it's kind of like connecting in like more profound or deeper levels with someone else. That's super interesting. So you're saying that um, it feels important to legitimize our worthiness from the outside. Is that you're saying that we that it'd be good or you're talking about having that from the inside or does I Having that on the inside, right? Mm-hmm. It's obviously the most important is for you to have it on the inside, right? Cool. But when there's someone in the external world that legitimizes that in you Mm. that completely matches with the resonance that you're having inside and that's why it's powerful you know what i mean oh yes maybe you've been in a relationship maybe with a partner that's constantly telling you what's wrong with you no and that look is actually hurting you right it's like oh you're not enough or you're not tall enough or you're not that thin or you're not that beautiful or you talk too much or whatever you know Mm-hmm. And then you can be in another relationship where that person is like, oh my God, I love the way you express yourself. I love the way that you are. I love your essence. I love um, what you do in life, you know? It's like completely different. And and that matches yeah. how you see yourself inside. And that's why it's so powerful. Oh, there's so many things I want to say in response to that. <laughs> <laughs> so one is that... Um, I absolutely love it when a partner accepts my shortcomings. Like that is one of my like love languages. If like someone can see me and is like, yeah, I love even, yes, I see that you're really hypersensitive, but actually I love that about you. Right. So it's like the part that's like the, the accepting of all, all the parts of Hanin. And um, I think the second thing is to get to where you're talking about, right. Having that partner that can celebrate you. There's a lovely quote that says you will attract someone who treats you only marginally better than you treat yourself. Mm-hmm. So if you treat yourself with that love and that kindness, 
then you will treat someone who treats you marginally better than that. And I, so I do think that we will attract whatever, you know, we hold towards ourselves, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yes, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. There's another thing I was going to say, forgotten. Oh, yes, that. I don't want to demonize the trigger. Like, so when we do have partners that say to us, oh, I just don't think you're resilient enough, Hanine, or I don't think you're like, yeah, you complain too much or whatever it is. I think those, I think relationships can be such a powerful mirror. Mm. Mm -hmm. So even when we receive those, it can be a call for us to do that healing work and to like, understand why does that feel so painful because mm-hmm. there are certain things that I've had people say like honey you don't make an effort with like your makeup or your face or like you don't it's just like yeah and, and that like for some reason that doesn't it doesn't matter to me because I'm just like cool I love like being natural and that feels great for me or whatever you like how yeah. look period <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm really happy with that but there are other things that people can say when they're like if someone ever tells me oh honey you talk too much oh my god that would really like I have a value for like not taking up too much space so I think that to me, if I notice I'm getting triggered by that, by my partner from a friend, it's a really good like way for me to understand what I need to integrate um, mm. and what to look, what, what qualities of myself am I disassociating from or feeling, um, mm. yeah, challenged mm. by. <laughs> of course, of course. That's something very um, important and very wise to have in mind. And a question that keeps on arising is the one about desire. What can you tell us about, well, first about desire, right? And then what about desire in relationships? I remember this question. I was in a conference um, of Esther Esther Perel, and um, I remember someone in the audience asked her, how can you desire something that you already have? Oh, great. great. Talking about long-term relationships, and I thought that was brilliant. So I wanted to ask you, what about desire? So I want to first start by defining desire mm-hmm. and to say what it isn't, mm-hmm. which is desire is not a drive. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to say this because appetite is a drive. Sleeping is a drive because if we don't have either of those things, we will die. Sex, like desire for sex is not a drive. If we don't have sex, we're not going to die. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say this is because people think they're broken, right? When they don't feel enough desire or they have low desire or low sex drive. So even the word sex drive <laughs> can be quite damaging. So desire for me, it's just, it's, um, it's the mental process of wanting somebody, right? In that you know, physical, sexual way. Whereas arousal is like the physical, the physical, physicality of desire, you could say. So desire is mental, arousal is physical. So now that you've got definitions out the way. <laughs> um, I, I think as Esther Perel, I'm going to steal a little bit of her wisdom first before I go into my thoughts, but she does say that it is always going to be a paradox, right? Like that we have the need for like novelty and familiarity or adventure and stability. Like there are always going to be polarizing needs. <laughs> um, and it's about what, how we ma- manage that paradox. And to me, I think it's about creating moments or like of separateness in connection. So what can often happen in long-term relationships is that we get so kind of enmeshed and sort of familiar. And I know everything about this person that there's no longer any mystery about it. And so 
I love that she talks about like this, like four different ways to be attracted to someone. It's like when you can see them through the eyes of another, like, like you say, you know, when you like see your partner in a party and they're talking to this really hot girl and you're like, oh my God, like, I'm so lucky to have my boyfriend. Or you see them in their elements, like they're on stage and they're performing or something like that. Um, and there's a couple of other ways that she talks about it, but I think it's about creating moments like that where you see your partner from a different angle, right? Or maybe maybe it is that you attend like a, a play party together. That's something I used to cu- curate. Maybe it is that you um, start, you, you make sure that you build sexual currency together. So you, you still make that effort, right? Like sex does start to feel a bit effortful or script-like. So how can you make it feel more, expansive and fun and creative and so for me I have a few tricks and tips for doing this like one is firstly just connect with your why like why what does sex give you that the rest of the relationship doesn't so that you and then learn to prioritize it Mm -hmm. right and think about it like a bit like (laughs) not quite like going to the gym because it does it can feel like oh I've got to go to the gym and it feels like an effort to initiate sex but it's it can it, it just like to I guess manage our expectations around it mm. um to prioritize it because and, and then I think it's about knowing how normal it is for us to not have that compatibility so naturally because when you're in the beginning of a relationship it's the honeymoon period everything's easy because you're being fueled by passion and you barely know each other and you so you're like going at it like rabbits and so eventually the dust will settle and then your truer kind of turn-ons and turn-offs emerge and that's when you start to see the incompatibility and you think oh no what something's wrong now and I think that's when you get into the the territory of like maybe blaming or shaming and so it's not that's when you should stop and be like this isn't any one person's fault this is a thing about this is a between this is a how do we manage this how do we feel about this that's the issue rather than like you're not enough like you need to fix this why don't you have enough of a drive it's like no let's talk about what context we can create that's going to elicit like a lot of desire uh, Mm -hmm. between us right and for me it's like oh big beautiful visual spaces like if we're going out hiking or it might be like a new um oh my gosh it's definitely like you said about Jaya and the blueprints I'm energetic so creating a lot a lot of anticipation and tease um so I do not want to have any expectation of sex on the table so the moment I feel like this person's trying to get to orgasm or penetration I'm just like cool I'm checking out like so it has to feel yeah it has to feel low-key for me in a way that I can explore and that it's just it's just about that it's just super present focused um so figure out my parting tip would be really understand yourself what are your turn-ons and your turn-offs and then talk to your partner about that and see where you can bridge those diff- different desires and flavors of sex together. Mm-hmm. Those couples that talk about sex have better sex. <laughs> totally. And I think it also helps to kind of like learn and explore together, right? Maybe go to a um, workshop together. It could be a workshop about, I don't know, exploring different things, tantra, flirting, um, sensual communication, you know, and then also that kind of like brings more, um, like this newness, no, or this kind of like new activity or new topic and something that you both can explore together. I think learning 
it helps a lot in life for curiosity, for desire in relationships, you know, for learning, for healing. I think curiosity is an extraordinary compass that we can use, right? That. To be guiding us. 100%. Amazing, honey. Thank you so much. I would like to close by asking you a few questions. Ideally, if you could answer them in one word or few words, you know, just like something short. It could be a few words, but something short, right? So for you, art is uninhibited self-expression. Your favorite author? I'd say Brené Brown. <laughs> An advice that changed your life? Staying with my feelings or connecting to the body. The best quality in humans? Our imagination. <laughs> A book that you recommend? Addicted to Love by Jan Goetz. What feeds your soul? Dance. Ah, oh, dance. Zeke dancing. <laughs> the most pressing issue for humanity? Disconnection with ourselves. If humans agree on this, you will be very happy. <laughs> you are worthy of sex and pleasure. Mm. You're all worthy of it. What would you like to scream to the world? <laughs> Slow down. <laughs> Slow down. <laughs> Something you expect with joy in 2022. Mm. Forgiving myself, trusting myself. Yeah. Beautiful. And the last one, what is it that you have lived that nobody else could miss experiencing it? Wow. I think a month of trekking in the wilderness, like just mm -hmm. being out in nature, it's the time I've been most close to myself. That's beautiful. <laughs> that connection with nature is insane. No? And we're building cities and interiors that are sometimes completely disconnected to nature, right? No parks, no trees. Oh, yeah. It's incredible. That's why I became a nomad. <laughs> I was like, I've got to be in nature. I can't be in London anymore. <laughs> you can do this. <laughs> exactly. No, amazing, honey. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and, you know, the work that you've done in your workshops. And thank you for sharing your magic with us and with the Luan community. And thank you for your time. It was wonderful talking to you and exploring these topics about human connection and sensuality and, you know, these emotions that could be blocking or helping us to have meaningful connections mm, it was such a pleasure to be on here this topic gives me so much joy so the more we can talk about it the better. Talk for hours for hours i felt it i felt it <laughs> but maybe we can do part one and then you know invite you again and then we can do part two you know to explore deeper <laughs> that's so great <laughs> thank you so much Hanine. thank you so much want to keep the conversation going Luan, the world's first emotional museum, designed a global online experience to inspire and explore. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Telegram, and visit our site at luanmuseum.com to engage creatively. <laughs>